0: Welcome to Not In A Huff with Jackson Huff, Huff. where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not In A Huff. Thanks for being here. You're in for an absolute treat this week. I am interviewing Kenny Rayman. Now Kenny is a I guess a, a retired smuggler which is a crazy thing to to even think about and to to say uh, but we're going to learn all about his his 25 year plus career in smuggling. Now first question's obviously going to be what did he smuggle? He smuggled drugs, mostly just marijuana. He didn't didn't get into the to the hard stuff, but he also smuggled people where he would go to, you know, countries that were in civil wars and, and had people that needed to to get out. We recently had that, that same type of issue with Afghanistan and people needing to get out. So he was, you know, a, a hero in that sense where he helped a lot of people uh, get out of a lot of bad situations. But just to, to talk to someone who's lived the life that he's lived, sailing his sailboat um, without, you know, modern navigation Basically, around the globe, in in all oceans, getting getting drugs through customs all around the world, dealing with pirates and and those trying to to steal basically his his treasure, if you will. Uh, it was just an amazing conversation. You know, we're literally going to talk about smuggling drugs and people around the world. We're going to talk about pirates. We're going to talk about you know, ships and shipwrecks and ocean uh, storms and waves and just, it's basically a modern pirate tale. its It was an amazing conversation. It, I learned so much. It was so fascinating to talk to Kenny. I really, really appreciate his time. I don't want to take up too much more time here in this intro, but I just it, it was it was so cool. I, I don't know how often we're going to be able to talk to a, a modern day pirate, and that's what exactly we we got to do. I don't know whether he necessarily wants to be called that. I actually asked him what he wanted to be called. You, I think you'll you'll like his answer there. But just a, an amazing guy. Now, I do want to say that he asked to do this over the phone, so the audio is just a little bit different. I don't think it's going to affect much. Such a fascinating story, but do know uh, it was done over the phone. And uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Kenny Raynon. I'm here today with Kenny Raynon. Kenny, how are you? I'm okay.
1: How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. I, I don't even, honestly, we talked a little bit beforehand, but I don't even completely know where to begin. You've got so many just amazing stories i think that you could you could tell but let's kind of start out at the very very beginning before you know before you you kind of got your your sea legs so to speak and tell us just a little bit about life kind of growing up as uh as Raymond.
1: well actually let's start with i i was a rock climber for um you know during my late teens and early 20s and um you know, I was a Yosemite climber, big wall climber and hmm. whatever. It was during the period when wild people were climbing. But um, my climbing partner called me up in Telluride. I was living in Telluride in a teepee. And he uh, he uh didn't call me at the teepee. But anyway, left us message his <laughs> bar. And I went down and <laughs> called him up and he said, hey, listen, you want to go on a sailing trip? And I went, well, I was planning on going to Yosemite, but nah, I really, I've never been sailing. And he went, well, there's money in it. And I said, well, it was a long story, but in the end, I ended up going sailing. And I, this actually, this whole story is in my latest book, but um, I got on that boat and I realized it was a trip to Columbia, a smuggling trip for weed. Anyway, so I realized once we got to Columbia and on our way back, I was thinking, Wow. I mean, I always loved traveling, but this is the way to travel. You have a house. You can go anywhere in the world. You have everything you own on it, your books, everything. It's an entire encapsulated lifestyle that can go anywhere. So I ended up being a sailor. And since I wasn't a wealthy person, I mean, boats are expensive, let me tell you. So you have to do something to make a living. And I, I mean, I always pretended that I was a rich kid traveling around the world, but well, not always, but sometimes. <laughs> and so I ended up doing, and since the first trip was a smuggling trip and we did okay, we made some money. I thought, okay, this is a good way to pay for it. And that's how I kind of ended up as a smuggler. And I ended up doing it for 26 years.
0: Yeah. And I, and- I mean, I definitely want to get into, into all that for sure. But, we kind of just very briefly glossed over something and I feel like a lot of people are going to say, what just because I think you've lived a life that's very different than, than most people. Cause you just quickly said, you know, I was living in a teepee. You, so, I mean, what, what kind of life were you living at that time that, that had you living in a, in a teepee? I feel like you're probably a little bit more <laughs> adventurous than most.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I went to school in San Francisco, to San Francisco state. And then I, I don't know, at some point when all the riots started in the, I don't know, I guess was this early seventies, I moved to um, Lake Tahoe, California and became a skier. And at some Mm -hmm. point along the line, somebody taught me to be a rock climber. And so I just basically went with the flow. And we were living in Telluride, my sister and brother-in-law and their two kids. And it was summertime. So we were living in a teepee. Actually, where Ralph Lauren bought his ranch, we were living up there, but it wasn't his ranch then. It was Mm. just a place in the mountains. But, yeah, those were the years when people went out and did what they wanted. I mean, people still do, but it's not quite as common, I guess. (laughs) And it ended up being a sailor, which I thought fit right into the kind of loose lifestyle, you know.
0: For sure, and that's kind of leads into the, the next question that might be the hardest question that I I ask you the the whole time here, and that's you know it, you've done so so many things like I've already alluded to, but if you had to kind of pick one thing that kind of goes after that that semicolon Kenneth Rainon semicolon what what do, what do you call yourself? Are you a sailor, an adventurer, a smuggler, just a a good guy what what do, what do you what do you kind of uh peg yourself as if you even can i can well i
1: i think um free spirits really there the thing go. i mean i don't really call myself that but in <laughs> in the end the lifestyle's all about freedom it's about not getting sucked into some thing that you don't like you know we all know people that live lives they don't want to live they mm-hmm. just want the money mm-hmm. basically it's a straight trade Freedom for security. Yeah. I you think can't so. be free if you're looking to be secure. There's just no way. They those two things are they're not mutually inclusive. So you gotta yeah. give something up for freedom.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh that's a larger topic we could probably spend an hour on, just on, you know, everyone kinda of has well, to tra- trade their freedom for, you know, this capitalist world for sure.
1: Well, it's not necessarily that because I mean as a smuggler, I guess I was kind of a capitalist. But, you know, yeah. it's that whole thing about sailing around. Okay, look, say you cross the oceans. I mean, that's part of being a smuggler and a sailor anyway. And in those days, by the way, there was no electronic navigation. So um, essentially, what kind of security do you have on a sailing boat in the middle of the ocean? I mean, you basically had the security of the amount of experience you have and the, how good a boat you have. I mean, that's what keeps you safe. So in the end, your your security's in your own hands. You know, as far as smuggling goes, well, you know, you've got to learn to go to foreign countries. And, you know, my job was to go to places where I oftentimes didn't even speak the language. And I had like a week or maybe two weeks if I was lucky to figure out who to trust with a whole lot of money, you know, that they don't kill you for the money, A, and B, that you give them the money and they give you whatever marijuana you want or, I don't know, It's just who to trust in these foreign countries. I mean, I did a lot of picking up refugees, too, and taking them to safe places. But, you know, it's a matter of getting used to not being secure, being able to go to a place and figure out what's going on and get out of there with your skin and whatever else you can get out of the deal. And I didn't always make money, that's for sure. Part of the yeah. deal is, you know, just being out in the ocean and looking up at the sky and going, hmm, wonder what's going to happen tonight, you know, because even in this day and age, you don't get good weather reporting in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It's not a very secure lifestyle, but you do get to go where you want. And by the way, it's very attractive, you know, the whole idea of living on a boat and going where you want. And it got me a lot of pretty cool girlfriends.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, there you go. I want to talk a little bit about that here in a little bit. I know you you (laughs) mentioned that in kind of an interesting way, so I want to talk about that. But I want to go kind of back to the basic of it because I never really assume that anyone listening knows much about anything that we're talking about. I always like to kind of go to the basic level. So tell us just a little bit about exactly what smuggling is. You've mentioned smuggling quite a bit. Um, but kind of basic level, what is what is smuggling to you anyways?
1: Well, first of all, I think it's like one of the world's oldest professions. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's right up there with prostitution, I'm sure of it. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, governments like to control what comes and goes out of their countries. And, um, you know, the founding fathers were smugglers in, in the United States, um, probably your listeners are all over the world, but the James Madison, they owned a whole fleet of smuggling vessels. They were, sm- I mean, the Boston Tea Party, I mean, it was just, it was the whole thing about smuggling, you know, tea was smuggled, slaves were smuggled, guns during the Civil War, guns and gold, gold's another one that still smuggled everywhere, because the governments love to control hard currency, and that's what smuggling's about, it's about getting around the government one way or another, one government or another, you know, like getting out of a place where they don't want things to leave or they want to control the trade. In in terms of marijuana, it's, you know, Colombia, Jamaica, Thailand. These are countries that grow weed. Well, now it's legal in the United States. I don't know where you're living, but maybe it's legal where you live as well. But in those days, it wasn't legal. And it wasn't about the weed that people were smoking. It was about... Avoiding the taxes, because the government doesn't like you making money if they don't get a cut. Mm. So I would just go to these places and buy a load of weed. I mean, the, the two books that I wrote were primarily about smuggling weed. And, um, in the first book, it, I was in the Indian Ocean and we were, we went to Thailand and picked up a load of weed, myself and my girlfriend. And then we had to sail it to Holland. That's a long ways more than halfway around the world. And you don't want to make any stops because, you know, some of the countries you have to go through, they definitely will put you in jail forever. <laughs> they catch you doing, you know, smuggling narcotics. I never saw it that way, but the government likes to put it that way. So, yeah, you know, and sometimes I'd hide it and sometimes I wouldn't, you know, like sometimes I just kind of, uh, early on in my life, I was pretty bold about it. You know, like, just disguising and big bales of weed you know, hidden in below decks in the boat. You know, a lot of getting away with it is about looking like you're somebody else, <laughs> Yeah, which is kind of interesting. You know, like, say the Coast Guard stops you. and in, in my last book, The Coast Guard Stopped Me, and, you know, we had all of the Right before we came into the United States, which was Daytona, we had all these really nice, clean clothes put in, you know, sealed bags. So we pulled those out and we came in. We had fresh, clean clothes. And I put my long hair up under a baseball cap and I had a little short haircut underneath. And we looked like quite the young couple, you know, traveling down the East Coast of the United States. And the Coast Guard looked at the bales of weed. They just didn't see it because they didn't expect to see it. You know,
0: a lot of it was about image yeah does that blow your mind a bit (laughs) yeah well i mean that that makes sense to me i mean there's there's movies and everything else about people who have smuggled things and it's just about not looking like a smuggler that's probably the first rule of being a smuggler don't look like one if you're you know if you if you look like a a shady character then you're going to be looked at a couple times but if you look like a family i'm sure that uh it's a little bit easier to get get by with some things
1: yeah, it's all about image. And, you know, it's it's about profiling. I mean, it's been an issue politically in this country. You know, profiling. Absolutely. I was all all over profiling. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like we we would have been at sea for in the most recent book, uh, *Smuggler's Guide to Fine Dining*. It's and it was it was all about image. You know, like we washed the boat down with oxalic acid, so everything's shiny and clean and white. Even though, and we didn't want to look like we'd been at sea for the last six weeks, which we had, and um they just never suspected us, you know they just people see what they think they're going to see, mm-hmm. and if you control the narrative, you control the issue, you know mm-hmm. you control the scenario, the dangerous point becomes less dangerous, mm-hmm. and we did mm-hmm. things like baked bread, baked brownies, so when they came on board, the Coast guard came on board they wouldn't smell it you know they just smell
0: fresh brownies like <laughs> oh so each of these times that I mean obviously you got used to it at, at some point but was it still nerve-wracking each time this happened or did you turn into being kind of so good out of it that you almost didn't worry about it anymore no you always worry about it yeah well, I always think is, so but
1: <laughs> it's about getting in control of yourself first of all when we left with a load it There's only two dangerous parts to smuggling, the picking up and the dropping off. Hmm. So you go to sea, and uh, sailing boats go slow. I mean, a fast sailing boat goes 10 knots, which is like 12 miles an hour, 15. But so you have a long time at sea, and we wouldn't stop anywhere, obviously. And you've got time, and you just kind of forget that it's there. You get used to it. So, okay, when the Coast Guard came on board in this last book, yeah, I mean, we ran aground. I mean, we were in the channel, but, you know, there'd been so many storms that the channel had changed, and so the boat ran aground. The tide was rising because we came in on a rising tide. I mean, you think about all these details. You get good at it after a while. So we knew if we went aground, the tide's rising, we'd float off, which we were about to float off, but... Look, I was so worried that my <laughs> my lips were so dry that my lips cracked. <laughs> mm. You know that's a pretty nervous moment, but it's only a moment yeah
0: you know? yeah yeah i can, i I couldn't even imagine the I think, part yeah, you talk about not stopping um how i mean how long is the a, a journey from Thailand to uh to, I think to say, say the Holland, Red sea. Yeah. yeah,
1: but we stopped on that trip. We had to, okay. so you had to go through the uh, Suez Canal. Yeah, so basically, it was like, I think it was 65 days from Thailand to, um, we stopped in Djibouti, which is a free port, so they really don't have customs. So, mm-hmm. but on day 50, we got into some big freaking waves, big, and, um... We watched a ship sink right in front of us, mm. a big ship. But we were on a small sailboat, and the boat actually—it didn't—it turned over. The mast was totally underwater, but we didn't flip the boat. But the waves were taller than our mast, which is sixty feet. Mm. So you know that was on day fifty. But by then we were so such hardcore sailors, <laughs> we were in great physical condition. And it didn't get bad all at once. It got bad each day, got worse. So we kind of got used to it. Hmm. But yeah. it's still that way sailing. And you know, these long distance around the world sailors, of course, they have a lot more security. You know, they have constant contact with the race people and whatever. But we couldn't be in contact with anybody. I mean, we were on our own.
0: Yeah. I mean, no calling you... the
1: coast guard when the shit hit the fan. You know. What I mean?
0: Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you, I mean, you mentioned that the hardest part or the the scariest part is the picking up and the dropping off, which makes total sense. But you you also mentioned you know going through the you know the Djibouti area, and I know in recent years there's been issues on the water there with with pirates and pirates? stuff like that. Have you did you have any issues with that with that while you were Oh my were God, going?
1: we had serious inter- problems <laughs> with the pirates when I first went to the Indian Ocean, and I wasn't a Neophyte, you know, I'd already been through the whole Caribbean scene, which was pretty violent and ugly. And I mean, I left the Caribbean because cocaine took over the trade and people who use cocaine are pretty dicey. So, I mean, I wasn't, you know, we had a semi-automatic rifle on board and, you know, we were well armed. And, um, we ran into problems with pirates. I'll let people read the book. But part, one of the things I left out of the book was that after I'd been in Africa a while, and Ariana was my partner in those days, a young woman from, who was born in Kenya, but she was a British citizen. And um, we decided we'd have a a meeting with the pirates. And let me tell you about the pirates in Somalia. First of all, Somalia is an, a country without a government, no government. And the coast where all the pirates are, which they make a big deal about. I mean, there's a film made, Captain Phillips. It's Fairly accurate. The one thing that's not accurate is they showed a town with hundreds and hundreds of people. Well, there's no one living on the coast of Somalia because there's no water. Like the biggest town has 200 people or something like that. You know, it's, so we had a meeting with the, kind of the head pirate, if you could call it that. I mean, they're not, it's not an organization, but one of the dudes, you know, and I, we wanted to get it across to him. Look, And I actually said to him in Swahili, I said, listen, we've already had encounters with you. I've shot at you. I don't think I've killed any of you. But eventually somebody's going to die. It's not going to be me. So here we are, lay off, and I'm going to give you a present. And I gave him the Book of Flags. It's a book that has pictures of the flags of every nation in the world. And I circled all the flags that had navies because generally first world countries, Don't use our Navy to protect ships that aren't, that are using flags of convenience, you know, like Monrovia or whatever. So I said, look, as long as you don't attack flags that have navies, you're probably okay. And for years they didn't. And then I think at some point they, either they got too greedy or the, the grandchildren who are probably the new pirates lost the book or, I don't know, that they started becoming, you know, having problems with the United States Navy and the Italian Navy, et cetera. So, yeah, I did have trouble with pirates, but we made a deal with them, basically. To answer your question?
0: <laughs> it certainly does, yeah. And, and I, I think it kind of gives us a teaser to, to check out more of the, the book, for sure. In, in your writing, too, you, you mentioned that what got you started in smuggling is not as interesting as what kept you smuggling. So talk a little bit about that.
1: Okay, well, this is the thing. I mean, I did it for the money, and it's just for something to do, basically. And, um and I mean, I was just kind of an innocent in that way. But what kept me in it was the whole idea of freedom and the whole idea of having a house that you can go anywhere in the world on. And also, I loved diving. I mean, the whole lifestyle. It's about the lifestyle. I mean, and I want to emphasize that to anybody that's listening to this, not just you, but and that is you do have the right to be free. You just have to be willing to give up your security to get out there and be free. And I I freaking love being my own government, (laughs) my own person, you know, and it snagged me some pretty amazing women, too, you know. And it made me a little money. I never got really rich at it. But I don't know. Because you never know whether you're going to make money or not. There's so many things that can go wrong, especially if you're smuggling weed. But if you're smuggling people, you know, sometimes they can't pay you. So what do you do? You don't kill them. (laughs) You know, you get people out of places. That's one of the things I did. But, you know, right now you could be... (laughs) Right now, anybody could be, if they had a good sailing boat and they had the courage to do it, they'd be making money hand over fist. Because think about all these people in Iraq and Syria who are who had normal lives. And those trust me, those people all have Swiss bank accounts. But they can't get to it because the war came and swept away their cities. They have no way to get out. I mean, can you imagine you've got a wife and two kids and you're, say, a doctor? Sure, you have your money in a Swiss bank account, but good luck getting to it. The war swept through the civil wars; they're in line with all the rest of the refugees. And I can see the doctor going, "No, you don't get it. I have money. I'm a doctor." And some I don't know, customs immigration official in Turkey's going, "Yeah, yeah, get to the back of the line. Everybody's somebody, you know." So along comes raining and goes, "Look, get out of line. Meet me at the at the beach." at such and such a clock, and I'll get you to somewhere where you can get to your money. Usually I'd take them to Singapore. And I'd take 10% of whatever they had, and they'd be thankful. And then I'd get them to a place, you know, get them nice clothes and everything because they don't have any money. Get them to a place where they could get in, not a place where all the other refugees were going. That's what I would do if I were in, in business now. And I'll tell you, all the people that I helped out, they see me as a hero. They don't care what they pay. <laughs>
0: you
1: know? yeah. I don't know. It's a kind of a people's hero kind of business.
0: Yeah, and when you talk about uh, heroes, you know, and you've talked about uh, you know a, a few times about the the ladies that you that you have encountered in on your trips. You mentioned that those are were the heroes of your books. So tell us just a little bit about exactly what that means that uh, the, the ladies on your boat were the heroes
1: yeah well i mean in the smuggler's guide to good manners it was ariana bell that's not a real name and um she was just looking to get out of kenya get away from her family she was 21 years old i was something like 35 and um i said to her well she was crew on the boat for a while And then my regular crew left, and she. I said, well, you want to keep sailing with me? She said, yeah. I said, well, how come you never asked me where we're going? She said, are we leaving here? And I went, yeah. And she goes, that's good enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) But she was amazing. I mean, she had no experience as a sailor, and I just threw her into the maelstrom, you know, smuggling and giant storms. She was at the wheel when the boat turned upside down. So, and she was a young woman and just went for it. And I'll tell you something else about women. I would always take a woman as crew over a man. It's the mama bear syndrome. Go ahead and threaten a woman's family, security, what have you. See what happens. A woman will pull the trigger and a man will take that precious moment to think about it.
0: Such interesting. I mean, women think of the nice. women
1: you know. Uh, think of your own mother, you know. Like women are amazing, you know. When their men go away, or say back in the days of prehistoric times, the men go out and the man gets killed by a saber-toothed tiger, the woman ends up being the hunter and the mother. <laughs> you know, it's I think of it as you know ingrained in their DNA at this point. But yeah, my women were amazing, and plus. They had to have that ability to live in both worlds, you know, work in a filthy boatyard all day long in a third world boatyard and then clean up and then go out and hobnob with the rich and famous at night because part of the lifestyle is pretending that you're a rich yachtsman. So it's all part of the latest pack of lies. (laughs) LPLs, I called it. (laughs) Mm. Cause yeah. You can't exactly tell people what you're doing.
0: Well, no, I would, I would assume not. Yeah. And, I mean, you, you mentioned that obviously this would be a, a good time to, to do this type of thing. Definitely not. This podcast is not, you know, necessarily condoning that. But what I would ask you Well, why is, not condone it?
1: You know, it's not illegal except in Syria where you. Actually, it's not even illegal at all to get people out of bad places. Well, you yes,
0: know, now that that part ground. I understand. That part I understand for sure. But yeah, but how did you, I guess you you mentioned why you got into it and, you know, why you stayed in it, but how did, I mean, how did these opportunities even happen? I'm sure there had to be something more to it where, you know, just some random person riding a boat, they don't just get, you know, confronted with, hey, smuggle this for <laughs> me. How did, how did you get yourself in these situations? You know what? Nobody's ever asked me that question before.
1: Well, Oddly enough, you would think that would be the obvious question, right? Yeah. How do you figure out who to do what with? You know, when people are out of a job, especially in this day and age when everything's in a flux, right? You have to have your mind open to reinventing yourself. And I use the pocket method of accounting, right? When my pockets are empty, start looking for a new job, something to do, and. I mean, I always kept a little aside to buy into the next game. But really, you have to have an open mind and recognize opportunities when they stare you in the face. I mean, you didn't start this podcast because it was part of your job or anything. You got out there and did this.
0: Right.
1: I mean, I think that's amazing, really.
0: Yeah, but I, I don't want to. Dis, I don't want to discount it as easy as that. Starting a podcast in your spare, you know, your spare bedroom is a lot different than saying, "Hey, I think I'm ready to get out here and and start smuggling things." So, yeah. Well, I'll tell you. I mean, just in your mentioning of, you know, freedom comes with a, a loss of security, and I tell you, that's a huge thing. That's why I said that it could be a a, a whole podcast because sometimes it is it's tough for most people to give up that security in, in most things. Like sometimes people, I, I don't think it's a good thing, but a lot of people do pass up on good opportunities because they're so worried about getting away from that security that they're used to. And, and that's what makes you, I think, really interesting and different is that you, I don't think that was something that really held you back at all. I feel like that, you know, the, that quest for, for being free came before anything else, and I don't think that's always the the case so i I commend you for it, and i don 't know that most people can do it
1: I think most people don't do it because i don't know a little nervousness lack of yeah. uh, i don't know you know but i'm I always listen I want to tell you something it it's not like I felt comfortable every time I went to see and I said it somewhere in one of the books i can 't remember which one even, and that is every time I left tossed you know, untied the ropes and sailed away. I was nervous about it and even afraid. Because cause one of the things that I, I did to prevent ending up in prison was to never do the same job twice. So I'd move to another ocean or I'd move to an, another continent or whatever it took. And I think I was always afraid of that. But I was afraid when I was a rock climber. I wasn't like one of the brave rock climbers. I just did it because I wanted to get up there where it was a neat place to be. So you kind of got to put aside your fear a little bit, maybe a lot.
0: I would say a lot to be able to do do some of those things. And that just makes it even more nerve-wracking, I would think. If if uh, you got used to doing the same job and got comfortable with that, that takes away some of the nerves. That's sometimes when people let down their guard and make mistakes probably too. But just to be doing a different job every single time is, is, I would say just adds to that stress level.
1: I was just going to say, it's very stressful. I mean, that is actually it stress, but hell, I don't know what job you do, what your day job is, but I'll bet there's stress involved. (laughs) There always is somehow. I don't know why, but humans are get themselves involved in stressful situations. I mean, But I think that most of the time like at sea you're all by yourself out there. There's nothing to worry about. There's the weather, but if you got the right boat you don't really have to worry that much. And nowadays Mm. you have like electronic navigation, that takes a lot of the fear out of it. I don't know, I don't think it's I think it's easier now. But yeah. One way or another, ask gas or grass. No one rides for free. It's an old biker expression.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, and you and you mentioned you being a, an old school navigator. That was that was the words I, I saw you use at one point. You you've kind of talked about the electronic navigation now, and that that isn't what you used. Is was that not available at the time, or is that just not how you you sailed? But tell us a little bit more about the the way that oh, you, yeah. you navigated because that's that just adds more to the to the interesting part of the the story.
1: Well, when I first started sailing, there were there was Loran. It's a form of electronic navigation, but they were huge. Like I wouldn't fit on my little thirty foot sailing boat, my first sailing boat, and it was complicated to use, and it wasn't effective in the middle of the ocean anywhere. So, and then came satellite navigation, and then that was good, but it, you know, and it was way down the line. But when I first left the United States on my second boat, Sarah, we had satnav. But somewhere along the line, satnavs—they stopped. The U.S. Navy stopped using it, and they let the satellites degrade. So during the trip from Thailand to Europe, I didn't have any electronic navigation. Well. I had it, but it was very sketchy. So, I mean, a bad position is worse than no position, basically. So I did a lot of, um, I navigated by dead reckoning, which is basically a matter of writing down every four hours the direction you've been in and taking note of how many miles you've gone and then transposing it to a chart. And then once or twice a day I'd check it by taking a sight with a sextant on the sun but sometimes the sun wasn't out there like this trip across the Indian Ocean it was stormy all the time (laughs) so we'd go two weeks without confirming our position and um, I didn't even have a radio in those days because radios were these big huge single sideband ham radio looking things which didn't fit in our on the boat, but, so it, and, you know, you couldn't call their ships. But then eventually we got VHF and, you know, ship to ship radios. But still, these days, you know, in the end, those things make it easier to sail and they take a lot of the stress out of it. But then you cross the ocean and you get caught by a hurricane. All that electronic stuff doesn't help you at all. <laughs> you gotta actually know how to sail. Yeah. So, you know, nothing's safe. But you know what? Think about getting on the freeway. You know, in many ways, you're going, you know, 80 miles an hour, bumper to bumper. Yeah. All these people are speeding. So what's dangerous when you think about it?
0: Yeah, I mean... I know. I, I Yeah, I, I can understand the danger doesn't go away with, with navigation. You still have to know how to sell. But at the same time, I just couldn't imagine the stress, like you said, of two weeks not knowing exactly... You know, you could easily, well, I mean, I'm sure you're better than this, but for somebody who's not as good at at navigating the way you did, you could easily be going around in circles for two weeks and not going anywhere. (laughs) So I just think that would be really stressful not to see land for weeks and not know where you're going. I know. For
1: some reason, I've never been uncomfortable. I mean, part of it is I always had really good boats, really strong, really seaworthy. The guy that taught me to sail was really on top of that. I mean, to be a long-distance sailor, you really need to have a good vessel, something that's safe. So, you know, in the end, ships are much less safe than sailing boats, especially a, a sailing boat built to cross oceans. They have little windows and real small hatches. There's really no place for the water to get in. It's really hitting things along the shore that, Get
0: you in Somebody
1: asked me, oh, aren't you afraid of being out there at sea? And I went, no, it's the hard bits around the edges that you need to worry about.
0: Yeah, yeah I've heard that with pilots, too. Yeah, up in the sky, that's there's no problem. It's the landing and the taking off that just kind of causes a grief sometimes.
1: Yeah, that's it.
0: All the time.
1: Yeah. Well, it's much that way with boats. You know, like all the hard parts are along the edges. But I had my, and there are other, by the way, other jobs. I want to go back to the other jobs. They're all, I'll give you another example. A guy used to come to see me. He had all this gold in Africa. His family had a uh, farm in what was Rhodesia, is now Zimbabwe. There was a revolution there or a civil war, but he, he had four tons of gold. And he came to see me in Florida and I wasn't ready to leave. And plus I was uncomfortable about taking four tons of gold on my boat because it was only 46 feet long. And, um, I wasn't ready to leave. I said, look, leave it right where it is. It's hidden underground. I'm sure. So leave it there until we're ready to get it out. Four tons of gold is a lot of money. It's like 370 million dollars now. Hmm. And, um, I don't know. He over the, and then he, I finally got it together to get it, and then he got nervous. He didn't call me again. I went, okay, forget that. And then two years later, I hear from him again. I said, where is this gold that you can just blow me off? He said, well, I moved it to Tanzania. That's across Africa to the coast. I said, well, what, it's in a house or something? He said, no, it's buried. I went, okay. I thought it was a mistake to do that, but whatever. And, um, but he was paranoid. He said, Well, how can I trust you? I went, Look, I have a great reputation. That's why you call me. I'm not going to steal your gold. 10% of everything of that gold is more money than I have ever made and ever expect to make. That's all I take is straight 10%. That's why people trust me. And he went, Well, I'm going to send somebody with you. And I went, No, you're not. Wait, you're going to send some Green Beret or some special ops guy with me, he's going to go to sleep. If I was going to rob you, I'm just going to kill him and throw him overboard. You know, why would I do that? I mean, it's a lot smarter for me to take my 10% and help you out. And he just couldn't wrap his head around that. He just kept getting more and more paranoid. And then he called me again, like, I don't know, in 2015 or something. And I, I said, look, I've got a new plan. We're going to sail it right into New York Harbor. There's going to be, we're going to have an attorney square it with the government. There's going to be a Brinks truck there, immigration, customs, and you'll be able to spend your money. Oh no, you told people about this? I went, listen man, we're going to do it legally. And he just hung up on me. You told somebody about this? I went. I contacted a, a a boutique law firm that specializes in re-turning assets, you know, lost assets, and they can square it with the government. You'll pay the taxes. Why not? There's plenty of money there for everybody, including the U.S. government. And he hung up on me. Meanwhile, I had found out he was living in a trailer park in San Antonio, Texas. The guy's got 300-something million dollars worth of gold, and but he couldn't let go of it. He was just too paranoid. And guess what? He's dead, Mm. and nobody knows where it's buried. (laughs) Mm. He died of a heart attack, and that is how buried treasure kind goes from being a hidden asset to a sh- treasure.
0: I'm sure that uh, all this stress of figuring out what to do with this gold probably didn't didn't help with his heart for sure. <laughs> I'm yeah. just
1: saying, you know, like this is the kind of shit you run into when you're free spirited sailor.
0: Yeah, and I, I read that you you kind of got off of the the sea at the turn of the millennia is is what what you said. Which you know that was should have been 20 plus years ago, but then you just told a story about something that happened in 2015. So I feel like you may be
1: well, but I didn't have your fingers
0: in a little bit more.
1: (laughs) Well, he he still had my number, and I thought, okay, for this kind of money, I'll go back into business. And I contacted a friend who had a boat that could carry it, an old friend, you know, and he was he had been out of the business forever, but he had a big boat and. He was running a bow yard in New York. He's the one that turned me on because he's a racing sailor too. So he turned me out of the law firm. It was brilliant. I mean, the guy was an idiot. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe how stupid he was. Not stupid. Yeah. OCD, paranoid, whatever. You know, like that kind of money twisted his head.
0: I mean, and are are you confident that, that he really had it or that he was just some kind I of I saw crazy? pictures of it. No, no.
1: I saw pictures of it, and it was in the form of cones. And everybody that's in the business in Africa knows that In the old days, they dug cone-shaped – they made molds out of sand. And I guess they used cones because it was easier to separate the gold from the sand after it cooled. And they poured in these cone-shaped sand forms. And I saw the pictures. There's no doubt that he had the money. And I mean, everything added up. And his behavior said it, that it was real too. You know, like the nervousness, the paranoia, the all of it. Yeah, it really existed. So somebody's going to find it one day. Some African's going to be digging a garden. He's going to go clunk with his shovel and whatever. I don't know. I, I never let my mind get into that too much, you know, like the, you know, and I don't, I never counted my chickens before they were hatched.
0: Yeah, but that, you know, that leads into to thinking about that. You talked about, it almost made you think about getting, getting back into it now that it's just somewhere that you've never thought, you know, I've, this is an adventure. Let's, let's literally find buried treasure. <laughs> I know,
1: but the coast of Tanzania is hundreds of miles and I don't know how far off the ocean he buried i have no clue like people spend a whole lifetime with the dutch lost dutchman Mine. people spent years their whole lifetime looking for the lost dutchman Mine. you know it's like no i'm not getting into that anyway i live for the moment i'm one of those moment people i live for the moment
0: yeah well tell us a little bit about what you you're doing now like you like we said that you you moved away from that lifestyle at least a bit you know, the turn of the millennia, you wrote a few books. Tell us what, what you're doing these days. Feel free to kind of plug those books and how we can, we can find them. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's true. I am writing, I have published one book. It was called The Smuggler's Guide to Good Manners. And it's a whole series, Smuggler's Guide series. The second book was A Smuggler's Guide to Fine Dining, which does have some recipes, but it's a prequel to the first book. And the third book, which I've already started, and I have a covered for already, is going to be called A Smuggler's Guide to a Jailbreak, and I'm going back to Columbia, so it's kind of a prequel to the prequel. I don't know. I just sat down and started writing, and they aren't in order, but um, they're all true stories, and the last book has pictures of all the characters. The first book had the diary of Ariana, who was my partner in it. The second book is the um, hero of the book is Maria, an early girlfriend of mine. And um, a lot of it I couldn't tell. I I, I would have written this book first, but I couldn't tell the stories because she was still alive and there were some issues, which you'll see when when you read the book. But um, both those books are available on Amazon. And um, I have a website, and you can contact me through that. And it's called The Smuggler's Guide dot com. The third book should be out next summer, but I'm kind of slow. But I have a house in Idaho, and at the moment, my son, my the mother of my child, he's 17 now, but she moved to Grand Haven, Michigan, because her father was unwell. So we all, i my son talked me into moving here, which is a good thing because it's such a boring town, Grand Haven, Michigan that I ended up writing books in the coffee shop around the corner. So, yeah, I'm kind of living in Michigan in the winter, and I live in the Rocky Mountains at my house in Idaho in the summer. But, yeah, the, actually, the first book sold thousands of copies, and it was on the bestseller list on Amazon. And the, it was right behind the Diary of Anne Frank.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, that's a good place to good place to be, I think.
1: I was surprised. Yeah, I mean, I was really surprised. I surprised. When I sat down to write this book, I never thought anybody would read it, but um, it's it's got a lot of verisimilitude. Ver- I mean, you can tell it's, these are true stories. I don't know how, but you can. And the first book, part of it was written by my girlfriend, Ariana, who sent me her diary from that mm-hmm. period. So, I mean, there's a lot of pictures of the characters, and it's kind of fun. You get to go to Somalia, and you, nobody's going to shoot at you. You go on in the, in the book. that's what i sign in and i go hey look i wrote this book so my friends could visit these places and see these people and experience the lifestyle which is what the books are all about the lifestyle you know the freedom lifestyle so without getting shot at so
0: yeah yeah and talking about
1: like reading or enjoy it
0: no i i i can only imagine for sure if 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 the books have have half the amount of stories you told, and I'm sure they've got even more, it, it, it's going to be an interesting interesting tell for sure. Say, it's a pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate um, you being here, and, and thank you. And thank you, Jackson. And that was my interview with Kenny and I hope you enjoyed that one. I certainly did. What an amazing guy! What an amazing story he has to tell. You know, there's not a lot of opportunity. We're going to talk to somebody who. Tells us about you know his time smuggling people, drugs, a lot of other adventures. Uh, it was just a, a cool conversation. I, I'm so glad that I got to speak with him. You know, speaking to to interesting people like this is the exact reason that I started this podcast. So it was an absolute pleasure. Hope you enjoyed it. Do check out his book. Um, I'm going to put the links to the books in the notes so you can check those out definitely recommend that just if if you were at all fascinated by the stories he told here goes into so much more depth in those books just an amazing guy amazing books and uh, I can't say it enough that it was just a pleasure to speak with him check him out of course check us out jacksonf.com go follow us go subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. I always appreciate that. I appreciate even more if you leave a, a review and, and say how much you enjoyed it. You know if you didn't enjoy it, maybe maybe you don't have to leave a review, but if you liked it, I, I always like to see that. Um, just kidding if there's something you didn't like, uh, definitely email me and, and I'm always always game for, for improvement. but uh, just a, a pleasure speaking with him. Great week. This week with an interview, and we'll be back next week with another great one. So come back next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being
1: awesome.